Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. Turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind, with beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com slash so smart for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code so smart to save 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 138. In this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we sit down with psychologist Julia Shaw. Uh, My name is Dr. Julia Shaw, and I am the author of Evil. Julia is an expert in memory and criminal psychology, and she's written a new book called Evil, in which she makes a case for something she calls evil empathy, seeing people who do heinous things as fellow human beings instead of as monsters. Othering them, she says, by putting them out of our minds and disappearing them into institutions or prisons allows us to see ourselves as superior or normal instead of, as she says, no different, just fortunate enough to avoid the situations, pressures, and dependencies that are more often the sources of terrible, violent, and frightening behavior than anything inherently different about one person from the rest of us. As she says, except in very rare cases, We are all capable of committing the sort of crimes and causing the kind of havoc we usually attribute to, well, evil. In fact, she says the word evil has no meaning. It's an antiquated magical idea that is not supported by scientific evidence. You will learn all about this and a lot more in the interview, including why we want to smash and tear apart the things that we find so cute that we just can't stand it. All right, let's pick her brain. Evil. Evil. Uh, so, 
Uh, before I, I think before you even talk about evil, I think a good way to introduce where you're coming from on all this. Um, tell me about the flower that's on your desk and how it got there. <laughs> I have a painting of a pink flower on my desk, which is actually it's attached with like a glue stick. It looks like to some cardboard. Um, and it was sent to me from someone in prison in the UK who claims that he was, uh, well, he stabbed his elderly father to death uh, repeatedly. So he totally overkilled him. And he claims that what happened is that he had a flashback of a memory of horrific child sexual abuse at the hands of his father. And that in that moment of rage, he then killed his father. Now he uh, later realized that this was a false memory. And so he is now sitting in prison and he's not denying the act. So he's not pretending he didn't do it at all. So he's going to continue to be in prison. Um, but he says that what happened is that he was over a few months uh, in treatment for alcohol therapy. So he was uh, drinking heavily and he was he needed some help. So he turned to some therapists and some social workers. And these convinced him that he must have had a terrible childhood. And that in that moment, it all came, quote, rushing back. And now he's in prison and he realizes it's a false memory and that he killed his father based on false pretenses, um, which is a total, like, he, he's he's really struggling with this. Um, and he requested that I send him a copy of my first book, which called, was called The Memory Illusion, which talks all about false memories. And um, I think what, for me, this highlights is that sometimes we become quote, monsters, unquote, uh, for reasons that aren't really, they're not part of our personality. It's not because we're fundamentally evil. This person also was a school, like a university lecturer, I believe, a teacher. And he, like, he had, didn't have a criminal record. Like, there was no nothing in his personality that suggested that he was capable of this kind of overkill or mm -hmm. of any kind of killing. Uh, and the other thing that I think it indicates is that sometimes, and I see this with police that I work with occasionally as well, is that we also hunt monsters. So he also thought his father was a monster, even though his father was never a monster at all. And so I think false memories are sort of the most sort of obvious way in which we create monsters out of nothing. And I think that really got me thinking about evil more and about what it actually is that we're talking about when we're talking about evil. I can say that as in reading the book, that was the first thing I was, that was like, it put me on my heels because I was like, oh, so she's she's got a completely different view of this. Okay, I'm going to be challenged all the way through here. I get it. So what what is it that you mean? Like when, when you use the word evil, like after doing this book and thinking about a lot of working with police with uh, memory research and everything, and especially since you have this, uh, this story that you keep in your heart and you have this photo you have on your desk, what, what does it mean to you? What does the word evil mean to you? So to me, the word evil is something that we use as the worst possible opprobrium. We use it to sort of say that someone isn't really a person at all quite often that they're so different from us that we'll never try to understand them. Um, for me personally, I don't, I try to avoid the word evil. The only time I use it is actually to uh, connect it with sort of, this is a kind of thing that people often call evil. So it's making clear that this is the label that's often bestowed onto whatever it is we're talking about. But then I, I try to immediately deconstruct that kind of like I did with the flower example, sort of it's like, he's not a monster. He's not evil. Um, it's, it's a very, in that particular situation, very particular kind of reason why he did what he did. Um, but in every single crime and every single quote act of evil, I think that there's a human being and we need to remember that and often we end the discussion where really it should be beginning. You, you talk about how a single act should not define a person. And, um, 
I think that can be a little shocking to some ears, the idea that, you know, we shouldn't label a person a murderer because they've murdered someone. What do you, what do you mean by that? And what is, a, what is your perspective on it? Yeah, I think that we have a tendency to put people in boxes and those boxes have labels on them. Um, and we like to uh, sometimes put those boxes into prisons and just leave people there. Um, mm. I mean, I think that when we call someone a, a, when we attach a label to someone that's based on something that they did once in their lives, I think what we're doing is that we're oversimplifying that human being and we're saying that a single moment defines them. And I think that if someone were to do that to us, if someone were to take our lives and to take a single moment, the worst thing you've ever done in your whole life, and to forever just define you by that one decision, by that one moment, you would think that is completely absurd. And you'd say, There's, this does not represent me. Obviously, I'm more complex than that. Obviously, I'm still a good person. I made a mistake. Like You'd have lots of things to say about it. Uh, and yet that's what we do to others all the time. That's what we do when we call someone a murderer or a psychopath or lots of or a pedophile. Right? I mean, some of these things are more medical labels. Some of them uh, are uh, more sort of crime related and sort of action related labels. Some of them are more sort of grand labels like evil, like this person is evil. But in, in all of those instances, whether it's medical or, or crime related, we're doing the same thing. We're saying, I'm going to define this person by one single phenomenon or one single act. And I think that just strips down the complexity of the human experience to such a point that it's absurd and it's not useful for people and it doesn't help us understand the context. And ultimately, it doesn't help us prevent that terrible behavior from happening again, which is ultimately what we should all be striving for. Evil empathy. It's an interesting concept. I, I can, it's strange that it raises hackles at all. And, I, and I'm like, I'm noticing that. And it's interesting. Like, uh, have you noticed that talking to other people? Is it make, how do other people react to this when you tell them these sort of things? I think that on a fundamental level, people understand the idea that, you know, people can do both, quote, good and bad things. Um, I think we all realize that we don't aren't always the best versions of ourselves, for example. But I do think that people struggle to change their worldview around how they're allowed to call people who do heinous acts. Um, so I think we quite like thinking of ourselves as completely separate from murderers and psychopaths. I think we quite like thinking that we would never be able to murder someone. I've had that debate lots of times where my very firm opinion is obviously everyone is capable of killing other people. Um, and I mean, it just takes a war to break out or, you know, the circumstances to change to, to, to be not in your favor for you to potentially act in ways that you think are impossible. And if you aren't on guard and you're not constantly, you know, watching this, then I think it's really easy to slip into be, being, becoming those, quote, evil people that you, you know, have ostracized. So I think we need to constantly be thinking about how these characteristics are in all of us. And that empathy, sort of relating, trying to relate to people who do bad things, it's not to excuse it, but to try and understand it. Because if we try, if we start to understand why other people do these things, we might also realize when we might come and do these things and how we can prevent it. Yeah. This is such an important thing in, in psychology too. The the idea that, you know, context and situation matters so much. Um, the fundamental attribution or all that stuff. The the to circle back to something before we talk about Hitler. <laughs> um we, are you saying that we we are all capable of evil given the right circumstances? I think there's no such thing as evil. So just to backtrack on that, uh, I think there's no such thing as evil. I think evil is an antiquated label. I think we should all stop calling people and acts evil. I think it's um, it's not a useful concept. Okay. Uh, I think it is useful to say 
people did bad things or people did um, unacceptable things, that's fine. People broke laws, also fine. Uh, people went against fundamental human rights, also fine. Uh, all of those are still very clearly expressing that you fundamentally disagree with what this person did and you think it's terrible. Um, but I think, yes, I think we are all capable of doing horrible things. And that particularly is the case when we start to dehumanize others. Uh, and one way of dehumanizing them is by calling them evil or labeling them as subhuman. Mm. Okay. And, um, there's this one other thing you say, which I like is, uh, uh, I guarantee you that somebody in the world thinks that you're evil. What do you, what, what do you, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Oh, I mean, from your sexual preferences to what you eat. So if you eat meats or don't eat meats, or if you, um, you know, are bad for the environment because of how your lifestyle, I mean, I'm terrible for the environment. I fly a lot. Um, that's like my carbon footprint is <laughs> totally unacceptable. Mm. Um, I, I eat meat even though I know that I'm a hypocrite and I really should be vegan. Um, and I'm sure other people look at that and look at my lifestyle choices and look at the way that I do things and they think that I'm awful and that I'm evil and that I'm probably going to hell. Um, mm. And that's, I, I just think that probably there's someone in the world who thinks that of every single person um, and, or, or one person for each of us, at least let's say that way. Yeah. And, okay. and I think that we forget that because we always classify ourselves in, in the worlds of good and evil. We're always the good guys. Um, oh yeah. We're the I, hero. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, because we understand the context and the reasons why we do things. So obviously we're not the bad guys uh, or the bad people. We're the good ones. And I think that that's a problematic worldview. You, um, you, you talked about the, what, if we were to put Hitler into it, if we were going to try to like scientifically like find uh, this thing you've already said doesn't exist evil, but if we were trying to like figure out what's going on with Hitler um, and we put him into a brain scanner, what would we find? I think we'd find mostly that we couldn't differentiate Hitler's brain from our own. So I think that's step one to the surprising thing, I think, for most people. I don't think he – he never really had a like a psychological diagnosis uh, that was extreme. So, I mean, he was probably a narcissist. Uh, but beyond that, like, he didn't have any major deficiencies. He didn't have any major diagnoses. Um, there's sometimes been talk about sort of him having a bad childhood, which historians even there disagree on. And some say, no, he had a totally fine middle-class childhood. What are you talking about? Um, he seems like, as Hannah Arendt likes to talk about this as well, she's a philosopher who writes about, um, actually also the Eichmann trial, uh, which is someone who was involved with Hitler, but, uh, she talks about the banality of evil. Mm -hmm. And I think Hitler's brain is banal. So you, I think you expect there to be sort of this monster in there and you expect there to be some things you can clearly see, but you probably can't. But that being said, in my hypothetical recreation of Hitler's brain, as I do in the book, um, I talk about the, the pathway to evil, which was proposed by Philip Zimbardo and, and colleagues, um, where he talks about, in particular, the prefrontal cortex, or part of the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that's right behind your... your um, oh, gosh, I'm thinking in German, because I just did my book tour in German. Die <laughs> Stirn. <laughs> Right and I'm thinking about Hitler, all of it fits together, right? <laughs> well, there's, something, there's something about Hitler that makes you think in German. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, <laughs> but right behind your forehead. That's the word. Uh, so it's the part of your brain. Right you forgot. Your you forgot forehead. I was really thought it was. I, a, a, I thought it was going to be like a brain structure. Okay. I mean, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex is the name of it. <laughs> there we go. If you want, to, if we want to go specific, I want. I do that. Um, okay, good. <laughs> but it's it's essentially right behind your um, forehead, and it's responsible for decision making. And so the argument is that in empathy related tasks, your ventromedial uh, ventromedial sorry ventromedial prefrontal cortex uh, it doesn't work as well if you're a psychopath or if you're predisposed predisposed, if you will, to evil. Um, and the other thing is that your amygdala, your, your, the, the center that's responsible for emotion, including empathy, also doesn't engage. And so if you look at brains of psychopaths as well, their amygdala and their prefrontal cortex don't act the same when mm. we give them, you know, when we show them pictures of people in pain, for example. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind this is that if these parts of the brain are underactive in moral decision-making tasks, so when you have to help someone, for example, when you're hurting someone, then it makes it much easier to dehumanize or to not think about someone in emotional ways, and it makes it much easier to hurt someone. Yeah. So yeah. possibly Hitler had a deficiency there, but there's really no evidence for that either. Yeah, there's no. I mean, there's no evidence for so much when it comes to it, and it's 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 terrifying. I to I to think well, was just he was just a dude and uh somehow circumstances and and the the randomness and unfolding of history put this person in a position and 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 you know the obviously there's more than one person involved it's not like hitler brainwashed people and wagged his finger and they all did his bidding it was a giant machine of things happening all around him mm-hmm. um and you talk about this in the book there's something scary about reading your book in that you think that you all, you just keep reiterating you're capable of this. You're capable of this. This could happen to you. <laughs> this could happen to you. This could happen to all of us. This is not, uh, and it's, it's a, that's like the, the thing that keeps coming out of it. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to, I want to watch out. Uh, before the, does that freak you out? Are you like, okay with this? <laughs> I think it's reality. I mean, I think that it's, uh, I, I could totally see how this could freak people out. And also because, I mean, I go into, I very much explore. So, I mean, we're talking about the Nazis and we're talking about really extreme circumstances here, but I mean, the book really goes into things that we don't talk about very often. So, I mean, the Nazis, as you said, there's like loads of books written about this. And if you're really interested in this topic, you could spend a lifetime learning about it. Um, but what we don't often talk about are sort of the everyday things and the small things and the nuances and the gradation between sort of me being passive aggressive to my partner and me murdering someone or me committing genocide. Like, I mean, those are totally different behaviors on the surface, but probably have some, some at least small things in common. And to me, it's interesting to explore that, that whole spectrum of human behavior from, if you will, a little bit bad to really, really awful. Um, and, and how, is it an escalation necessarily? Is it not? But I think that the the thought that we're all capable of terrible things, I think it's, I'd, I'd rather, again, have us thinking that way and taking precautionary measures and spending a bit more time trying to get to know ourselves and focusing on, like, when we're in those situations, like, when when I'm even going to say another terrible war breaks out at some point, possibly in our lifetimes, which probably is going to happen, maybe not involving our countries, but I mean, there's wars happening all the time. And even that probably at some point our countries will be involved. Um, 
like that you're in those situations and you don't let someone like Hitler rise to power and you monitor what's happening and you and the more people I think are empowered with this kind of insight of we are we always need to be cautious I think the better humanity is going to do in those those difficult situations um so I think that yes it can be scary but uh it's also fascinating it's also really interesting and ultimately we come up more knowledgeable and stronger on the other side. Yeah. Wow. Um, I think there's a reason we also like to watch things like Dexter or like we, we like to watch sort of get into the role of psychopaths and killers and see what they're doing and what they're thinking. Yeah. Because I think there's a, there's a deep fascination also with our yeah. dark side. I want to talk about that for a minute before we head up. There's a, um, you, you, you mentioned in a lot of different places how some of this stuff is very rare, but you know, because it's so fascinating, we think about it all the time. Like, like, like serial killers aren't, they're not really very many of that doesn't really happen very often. Uh, and mo- you, you talk in the book about how most murderers murder one person and that's it. Um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, that's the, you know, be careful. That's a murderer. We never know. Obviously we want to be careful because they murdered somebody, but, um, the, but the idea of serial killers is, is that's not even, that's a very rare thing. And, um, even when you talk about that, the dark, tetrad and that that's something that's probably rare as well so if you could just talk about that as long as you'd like uh about murder and serial killers and the people that are like have the psychopathy and narcissism machiavellianism and sadism like the the prevalence of this around us versus our perception of it yeah i think the press does a great job convincing us that we're constantly in danger and that we can't really trust each other and that there's murderers lurking around every corner um now unfortunately in places like the u.s gun violence is a massive issue even compared to lots of other countries um and there is there is a fair amount of murder but as you said there's very very little serial murder um and typically it's it's very targeted uh that being said there's also a lot of banal murder so back to the concept of banality and sort of uh, killing people and doing terrible things for ridiculous reasons i think that there's been some research on why people murder other people and it's (laughs) when you read these reasons that people give as to why they killed somebody it's uh like uh, argument and fight over four dollars you know and then beat someone to death uh I hit, you know, the person hit someone in the head with a two by four because they're fighting over a bike, uh, shot a victim over the argument, an argument over a dog. Like these are totally what you might say ridiculous reasons to murder someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet these are the real reasons why people often kill each other. Um, and what this shows us is that, uh, that quite a lot of these homicides happen because there's a fight that gets out of control or there's poor impulse control. So someone just, you know, is angry about something and then totally overreacts a little bit, even like my, the the person who sent me the pink flower. Like, I mean, that was a total overreaction, even in that situation, even if he, even if that memory had been true about his father abusing him, like you don't need to stab someone multiple times when they're already not able to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it's, um, we, we, we imbue upon murderers, the sort of villainous character, the sort of nefarious, dark personality, but quite often that's not at all the case. And they've just made a bad decision that one time now with serial murders and with murders that are 
more planned and more, and, and if you will, less banal. Um, there we fall into things where we might have, for example, a psychopath um, or someone who is maybe sadistic or taking pleasure in hurting somebody else. And when we when we look at those characteristics, even um, a they're not necessary. So again, like we have this weird connection. I think again, mostly through movies that murderers are these sadists that are sort of cackling away as they're killing someone, mm. uh, which also is just not not accurate. Um, but there are occasionally sadists. And uh, I talk about, as you, you mentioned, the Dark Tetrad. So the Dark Tetrad uh, is a cluster of personality characteristics that make it more likely for us to do bad things. And in particular, even at a, at a what's called a subclinical level, so at a level that doesn't quite meet the threshold for getting a diagnosis, for example, of a psychopath or of a narcissist or of a sadist, um then but but even if you but if you have a cluster of these these characteristics together even if you don't meet the diagnosis it makes it more likely that you're going to act antisocially that you're going to do bad things for humanity so so there are definitely things that make it more likely that people are going to do these things um murder included but also other kinds of quote bad things um but yeah i think i think mostly our stereotypes are incorrect and mostly, we, we we stereotype murderers as these villains that they just aren't. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsors. It is so inspiring to learn from experts who are passionate about sharing their knowledge. And that is why I am a huge fan of The Great Courses Plus. I've been learning so much from their course, Outsmart Yourself, Brain-Based Strategies to a Better You, presented by the neuroscientist Dr. Peter M. Vishton. This course shares great scientifically proven brain hacks that we can all benefit from. You get 24 30-minute lectures about things like train yourself like a dog, how framing changes decisions, use your body to alter your mind, hack your brain to unlearn fear, grow your brain out of depression, and how to tune up your brain with meditation. Did you know that the more you tell people about a long-term goal, the less likely you are to achieve it? Data suggests that it's better to just tell as few people as possible. That's one of the lessons you will learn in this course, but here's something great about this offer. Here's this offer. It's great, okay? You can either buy a digital copy of Outsmart Yourself for only $9.99. It's normally $200, or get unlimited access to enjoy this course and any others with a special free trial to The Great Courses Plus, where you can learn about anything that interests you from 10,000 different audio and video lectures that you can stream for free by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com smart. Sign up now and get this offer by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com smart. Smart. Most diets fail. They make you change way too many foods all at once. And when you want to fix how you eat, you should do the opposite. Science tells us this. You make one change, you do it slowly, and you let it stick. Now, you can do that with an app. It's really cool. I've been using it for a little over a month now, and it's called the One Fix App. 
you, you get a private nutritionist. That's what this basically is. A nutritionist that you can talk to at any time of day, send them a message. They will send you a message back. It's a human being. And this nutritionist will analyze your meals. They find one thing that's causing your body to store extra fat and they give you a fix. And then you stick to that fix for a month and then you do it again and again. And after several months, you'll see that you're losing weight and you're feeling better and you're getting healthier. You just do that one fix every day for a month. And if you're doing just one fix, it's easy. I love it. You take a picture of your food, they do the rest. And if you have any questions, you send them a a message through the app. Sometimes they'll send you messages, just questions about what's going on or suggestions about what you should be doing. And you can chat. It's really, really cool. If diabetes or heart disease runs in your family, an extra 30 pounds can be enough to make you worried. And diets are a terrible way to lose weight. When you want to make it permanent, you do one fix at a time. Go to getonefix.com and use the code YANS to get $50 off of your first month. That's getonefix.com. And the code is YANSS to get $50 off of the first month. Once you download the app, a nutritionist will help you get started. Get one fix today at getonefix.com. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we're talking to Julia Shaw about her new book, Evil. Let's get back to the interview. I read this and I was like, eh, uh, it was the, 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 um, the normal, this is, these are, I think these are your words, uh, but I know the normality of murder fantasies, <laughs> yeah, homicidal ideation. Yeah. Um, that's really common. What's that all about? Yeah. So the majority of people, according to a couple of studies, uh, have at some point in their lives, a murder fantasy. So they fantasize about killing someone. Typically, it's like their boss or their lover. Sometimes it's like a parent, like a mom or a step-parent. Um, the, and, and evolutionary psychologists have struggled to make sense of this, sort of why do why would we fantasize about killing people? What does that have to do with anything? Um, and obviously, most people never go through with it, right, is the, the other thing, is that yeah. why would we have these fantasies that we don't act on? Um, and... The the researchers came out of this, out of this research, which I think surprised themselves um, that the prevalence was more than 50%, uh, and, and higher for men than for women, that at some point, you, know, you just want to kick your boss out the window. Yeah. Um, just a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, why do we have this? Why do we have this fantasy? doesn't mean that I'm actually, uh, like, l- that lurking inside me is this murderer. Um, I mean, maybe, but probably more likely is that the fact that you have the capacity to have this sort of thought experiment, this, you know, I'm going to think it through what would happen if I were to murder somebody and act on the probably anger that I'm feeling right now, or jealousy potentially, um, then when you would think it through, you realize that the consequences are terrible, both for the other person and for you. And that, and I don't, don't just mean that you might go to jail, because most people actually don't really think about that, because people think 
they're probably not going to get caught. Um, or they think that uh, there's other consequences that are going to be more severe, like that you, you're going to feel really bad about it, that your emotions are going to be messed up, that you're never going to forgive yourself, or that your family is never going to forgive yourself. I think we underestimate the impact of social consequences on our behavior, and we overestimate the impact of punitive institutional responses. So the states has a totally messed up system when it comes to tough on crime policies. I'm just going to say it. Oh, yeah. um, it's fine. Go ahead. Do it. Totally not a face. Totally ridiculous. Um, the death penalty does not seem to reduce crime. Uh, and I mean, that's as punitive as you can get is killing someone. And and yet crime often in those those parts of the states is not diminished. It's possibly even higher. Yeah. So p- punishment in the way that corrections often thinks about it just doesn't really work. Um, But it does work if we're talking about social and personal consequences. So if you're thinking about, you know, a network of people who are going to look poorly upon you and kick you out of their group, that's painful. And that probably has more impact than I would, I would expect than um, sending someone into, into a prison for a while. So anyway, um, where were we going with this? So, well, 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 we all <laughs> fantasize. Take me back on track. We all, we all fantasize about, uh, well, 73%, according to the research in your book, 73% of men and 66% of women have fantasized about killing someone. And then mm-hmm. they, you know, most of them did not. Um, most, most murders are men killing men. 95%, mm-hmm. you say in the book. 95% of all the murder is a man killing a man. What is going on here? I mean, you talk about it in the book. And, and, and I mean, I'm, it's, uh, as a man, I'm, it's something that, like, uh, you just you just look at it and think, what does this say? What is this monstrous thing? Um, why are what do we know about w- why this is skewed in this direction? Yeah, I mean, I have oh gosh, um, with the so I so for one, I think if we were to look if we were aliens looking at the human species, we would think that absolutely we should put all men into uh, confined spaces away from. <laughs> one another and we can't probably trust them around each other because they're way too violent um so there's that (laughs) observation um so the fact that men are running the world uh seems also kind of crazy in line with that Mm -hmm. um but uh, i think what's happening and this is something i think doesn't get enough or any airtime is i think it's a travesty that we have prisons filled with men now on, I think on the surface, it's like, oh, well, but they, you know, they commit more crime, so they should be in prison. Yes, but the question isn't, the, the question is, why do they commit more crime, right? And uh, then then you get arguments like, oh, well, testosterone, men have testosterone. And honestly, my response to that is bullshit. That <laughs> um, you can't control yourself because you have testosterone. First of all, women have testosterone too. Second of all, the whole assumption around the link between aggression and testosterone is not as strong as it's often made out to be. Uh, it was originally established based on three roosters and a science and a mad scientist, I would even say, who went ahead and cut off their testicles um, and then extrapolated and said, "Well, if these if this one rooster is aggressive, when I leave its testicle on, and these other roosters are less aggressive when I take off their testicles, then it must be it must be the." <laughs> Um, that's, that, that's didn't, they, why. Did, didn't they implant them or something? 
Yes, in one of the roosters, the mad scientist. I, I mean, he wasn't actually crazy, but he just well, did some mad science. Um, I think it's pretty reasonable to say that. We can say uh, that. Hey, come on, it's weird. Cutting off the testicles of chicken of, of roosters and putting it's them weird. inside their weird, yeah. it's pretty weird. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty weird. Uh, but yeah, he he cut off the yeah for one of the ch- one of the roosters. He uh, took off the testicles and put it inserted it surgically into the intestine. <laughs> Um, and that rooster was sort of moderate aggressive and it's not to say that there's no link it's not to say that there's no link between hormones and the way we feel obviously there are links but that doesn't mean that you need to act on them just like like you could also be horny it doesn't mean you need to rape someone like there's like there's lots of things that we feel that we don't act on and to think that we're somehow required to act on them I think is totally absurd Um, and I think that's socialized and I think that's where we get into like toxic masculinity. That's where we get into how we raise our boys, that we think it's okay for them to fight, that we encourage them to do more aggressive sports, that we encourage them to be less empathetic, that we punish it when they, you know, do sort of girly things, which are often more related to caretaking, that are related to pro-social behaviors. And we end up in a really, really messed up situation. Yeah. There's a... Um... <laughs> Did I express myself really cautiously? Yeah, very cautiously, I understand. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's good to say that you know if we're going to talk about this stuff, it's very easy to get it wrong. And like I, I suspect, conversations like this ten years, twenty years from now, like from a scientific perspective, will always be you know we're always trying to make sense of, of this in a way that we're you know, we don't have a whole lot of information yet. Um, I mean, but we do, we do. I mean, do you, do you think that you need to? To act aggressive, like, have you been aggressive before? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I've, aggressive probably, but have you, like, have you hit someone before? I mean, well, I've, I've, yeah, well, when I was younger, I was in high school fights, right? Yeah, so, um, okay. but not, not, uh, not as of late, and I've, I've not even at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you get airport security. <laughs> like, I read some. Uh, I want to. It might have been Sapolsky who said that, like, you know, if you put a bunch of chimpanzees in an airplane and then like flew them from. Denver to you know New Orleans, like when it landed, they'd all be dead. Like the you know, and <laughs> and, and so and so we have this. I mean, I think he's you know he's like I think it's almost an agreement with what you're saying that like you know we sure we've got all these tendencies and we have these hormones and like we get we violent we have these violent thoughts, but we're also able to like not do those things because we can control ourselves and we have uh you know prefrontal cortexes and, and impulse control and all these things and um. But what you're permitted to do by your culture, what you're permitted to do in context really does influence what you will do. Uh, you go through all these things in the book, slavery and the Holocaust and uh, um, Martin Screlly's, uh ethical weirdness, you know, selling people pills they need to live for more than they could ever afford. And, mm, um, yeah. and, um, and it keeps coming back over and over again. And, and I assume it, it's, it's true here as well. Like why are there obviously going to be biological uh, evolutionary like um, influences on why there are more men in prison or more men who murder. But in the end, this stuff is all titrated and mitigated by something. Um, Mm. Are are we would, you know, there's, are we would all have emptied our refrigerators, you know, (laughs) like we're all uh, with, you know, we need all the ice cream every time we buy it. So, (laughs) so it's always titrated and mitigated. So, um, well, and if, if you just need to travel around the world once to see, like, I, I mean, especially as a woman. I mean, if you travel around the world as a woman, 
um, you see very different behavior and very aggressive behavior towards you from in some places that you just don't see in other places, which I think has nothing to do with the fact that men have testosterone or that men are, quote, more aggressive. I think it has everything to do with the fact that men are permitted to behave this way towards women yeah. and that it's expected that they behave a certain way towards women or each other. Um, and I mean, this is reflected in murder rates in different parts of the world. This is reflected in all kinds of things. Um, and, and certainly in the treatment of, of women as well. So I think, I just, I, I just really don't think, and I think most men, if you told them like that, the expectation is that they're going to be violent, they would again say of themselves, well, that's obviously absurd. Um, but then they do that to other men. So again, we're in that same sort of conundrum of, you know, oh, I'm a good person and other people are bad and other people are, (laughs) can't, can't control their impulses. There are, I wanted to ask you about two other things where we go. One uh, was going to be about mental illness. The other would be about uh, why we want to eat baby's legs. Um, the, uh, but I don't want to leave without giving you a chance to talk about your, uh, I feel like I'm going to miss it if I don't ask you the, about the, the app that you've created or the, the service you've created the, 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 that uh, for sexual harassment. Uh, if you could, uh, whatever you want to say about that, I just want to make sure it's in the show. Yeah, I mean, as you probably could guess out of my um, description of toxic masculinity and um, explanations of male violence, uh, I um, I have very strong views on these things. And part of the reason I have very strong views is because about a year ago, I co-founded a, a startup called Spot, which helps people record and report workplace harassment and discrimination. Mm-hmm. And it's it grew out of some of the early Me Too stories and um, a combination with that and my recognition that often it's these cases are based entirely on memories. So if sexual or racial or other kinds of harassment or discrimination happen in the workplace, usually it's sort of one memory pitted against another. Mm-hmm. And most of us are really bad at recording and having high quality contemporaneous memory evidence that then makes a strong case. And so you can, so what we created is a chat bot that walks you through the perfect memory interview, gives you a timestamp PDF. And then at that point you can choose to send that PDF to your employer or to keep it in case things escalate and you want to submit it later. Um, so that you have that ideal piece of evidence with all the relevant information to make your case stronger and to make you more likely to be believed, to make it more likely that you know, things will actually change at work. Um, and we also allow an anonymous reporting. So one thing that came out of quite a bit of research over the past year is that people, one of the main reasons people cite is that they're uh, for not reporting, especially not reporting at the time, is that they're worried about the negative consequences, like losing their job, like let, getting worse shifts, like starting conflict, like all kinds of things. And anonymity is probably the only way around that so that you can still communicate to your employer that something's gone wrong and that there's an abuse of power while still not feeling like you're going to lose your job. Um, so so we created Spots. So I created it with my two co-founders who both work in Berlin and some some helpful helpful people in Silicon Valley. And it's live. It's free to use since February. Um, so you just go to tapspot.com. And if you feel like you've been harassed or discriminated against at work, you can use it. And it really helps to also clear your mind. Um, talk to spot.com. That's right. Um, it's so, it's such a, see, I, I, I love it when like, uh, science is used to make a new thing like this. Cause you really, you're you're like, you, you know, your background is in memory research. Your last book was in memory research. You, you, you really hit everything with that. You know, it's like, it's such a, like everything that would need to be in that service is in that service. Yeah. It's, it's also really promising. So we're, we're working with big companies as well. So, so the way we, we make, we sustain ourselves financially is that we now sell the back end, the management system to companies. 
And we've had some actually really big companies uh, come up and, and start using it. So we're really excited about where this might go and hopefully it'll be a practical solution that more people see popping up their workplace. Oh, that's great. I'll, uh, I'll definitely link it all in the show notes and everything. Um, okay. Two last things. First, first is this is just a point I don't want to miss is that um, I know that in the United States, we have a lot of conversations about school shootings um, and about what to do about it. And uh, the debate often comes up, you know, it's not about guns. It's about mental illness. Um, I see that on, mm. I see that on both sides of the argument. This is not about access to guns. It's about the fact that mentally ill people don't have access to proper healthcare. Um, and we obviously have issues when it comes to access with guns and we have issues when it comes to access to, to healthcare. Uh, but you point something out in, in your, in the book that, uh, about mental illness and, and people in school shooters and just, uh, uh, mass shooters in general. Like what do, what do we know about whether it is when people say, well, that per- that's a crazy person who snapped or that's a person who had a history of mental illness and they got a gun. What do we know about the connection? So, yeah, as I, as I write about in the book, I, I find it, um, first of all, let me say very clearly, most people with mental illness are not violent and they're not any more predisposed to violence than anybody else. Uh-huh. So step one is de- demystifying this this crazy connection that we continue to establish between sort of all forms of mental illness almost, um, but particularly sort of people who, for example, talk to themselves or people who act a bit bizarrely or unexpectedly, uh, we just assume that they're going to be violent. We sit further away from them uh, in physical spaces. We distance ourselves socially. We There's all kinds of consequences, both for that person and for ourselves and being able to engage with that person, uh, which are tremendously harmful to those individuals. Um, the second thing is that there is a link between a very limited set of mental illness symptoms uh, and mental illnesses that, uh, so like, for example, schizophrenia with positive symptoms. So for example, having hallucinations that you, for example, command hallucinations. So thinking that someone is giving you instructions to do things, it, having that as a symptom is is probably going to make you more likely, still not totally likely, but more likely to have a violent predisposition than someone who doesn't have those. Um, Similarly, having um, uh, paranoid delusions, thinking that people are out to get you, that they're following you, is also going to predispose you to acting violently towards others. But the real catalyst, the real catalyst that like almost never is talked about is that even people with these few symptoms, which most mentally ill people do not have, even people with these very few symptoms are not particularly high. Most of these people will still never be violent. Um, and those who are typically the, the accelerator is alcohol mm-hmm. or drugs. And so because people with these kinds of hallucinations are more likely to self-medicate with alcohol or drug abuse, um, they then, with that combination, that becomes a multiplier, and then they are significantly more likely to be violent. But you could argue that, in, but if you look at like any human being, and you throw drugs or alcohol in the mix, any human being is more likely to be violent if they have alcohol or drugs in their system. So this is true for everyone, it's just more of a multiplier for certain kinds of populations. Mm. Now with school shooters, I think it's often, again, too easy to just say this person's mentally ill because, again, we're engaging in a form of othering and distancing and saying, you know, well, my kid could never be this because my kid isn't mentally ill, Um, which is, again, I think, for one, often incorrect. Uh, And um, 
distances ourselves in a way that is, is not justified. And we should really be looking for the social and the, the other circumstances that have led to that person behaving in that way and not just assume that they're mentally ill. And I mean, some of these are rooted in like structural inequalities. I mean, they're not just like personal events that happen to you as an individual. Their, you know, lack of access to proper education, their lack of access to healthcare, which means that you're more likely to suffer with negative consequences of illness and of mental illness that make you more likely to self-medicate them. Like, like these, but the cause of the, the real foundation of that is the structural inequality. It's not, you know, this person, because, because we can overcome the problems with, with individuals who, you know, maybe don't have as healthy a brain as us, um, with, with other things that, you know, if, if the system is broken, we can't. Hmm. Um, so. well, now I touch on healthcare as well. Man, I'm going to get hate mail. <laughs> as, oh, you, oh, you're going to get hate mail. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get hate mail. We're all going to get hate mail. Probably a good thing. Probably means that we've reached the right the right people. Which is such a shame. It's so much more interesting to think of ourselves as complex, and that's part of the complexity. And I think maybe the latent anger and aggression that then is voiced through angry emails uh, is more of a fear of exploring that side of yourself rather than actually trying to get to know it. Okay. Let's do one last thing. Uh, I saved it for the end so that we'd have a happy thing to talk about. Um, um, what is, I'm just, just talk as long as you like. What is cute aggression? Cute aggression is that feeling that you get when you see a really cute puppy and you just want to his little, squish his little head. Uh, or you see a baby and you want to like, bite its face or like tear its little arm off. <laughs> now, when you feel this, or I have this with my partner as well, and I just want to like, oh, I just want to like slap him a little bit. <laughs> um, lovingly, loving slaps. Uh, but it's, it's almost like my body can't handle. I mean, we say that we say, you know, can't handle it or it's too cute or, you know, cuteness overload. We use all these words or these terms. Um, and they're all expressing the same kind of thing. And it's a, a type of aggression that I think sometimes actually can scare people. So I think that parents who maybe feel overwhelmed by this towards their own children occasionally might go, wait, do I actually want to hurt my child? Obviously, I don't want to hurt my child. What's going on? Am I crazy? Um and I think it's just something that we we have often we don't really think about sort of like I, I, I'd never thought about it until I came across this research paper that was discussing cute aggression and did some really fun studies with it. Um, but what it is, the reason we have the this this pseudo aggression, we obviously don't actually want to hurt our our you know cute little puppies. Um, what we want to do is take care of them and love them. Um, but the reason that that it comes that it expresses itself as pseudo aggression is what researchers call because it's a dimorphous display. So we are so overwhelmed by this flood of joy and caringness that it sort of throws at us the, the exact opposite emotion, and it throws at us this this aggression. Um, and the, the idea is that so our brain doesn't overload. <laughs> so essentially it's like, your brain's worried it's going to short circuit because it's l literally too cute, and it throws at you the the opposite the opposite emotion just to like counteract it. It's the same reason why we, uh, arguably, why we, for example, laugh at funerals or why we cry at weddings or why we. I mean, it's not just cute aggression that has this. It's lots of different situations. Yeah, um, yeah. But I I explore it because I think it's uh, my first question was sort of like because I do this with my partner as I said all the time and I definitely did have a like should I be worried about this you know <laughs> is this latent anger or aggression that that this is and turns out it's totally normal 
Um, and that's another thing you'll find in the book is that there's quite a few things that and there's also two chapters on sex, uh, one on fetishes and deviance and one on pedophilia, um, which I also think is a brave thing to do is turn a whole chapter on pedophilia. In a oh, yeah. Time, you but... went you went all over the place. So uh, I, I, yeah. I was in the, I was like, I, I, I only have so much time. I'll say I'll let that I'll leave that one off. <laughs> Um, yeah, but but it's I do want uh, certainly for the fetish chapter and for things like this, like you will also reading this book come to get to know parts of yourself that you thought that you were maybe worried about that are you thought were weird that you maybe find out are pretty normal. Oh yeah, uh, you talk about some fetishes that I I had no idea existed, uh, and I've been on the internet <laughs> I've been on the internet for a long time. Uh, so yeah. I rec I really recommend the book. Uh, it's uh, and I'm, I'm, it's good to see uh, you put out another book and, and, and keep going with all this. And um, the uh, it's 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 also per your character uh, a very confrontational. And I have a way of seeing things that I don't care if you think this is weird. Uh, it's a good. <laughs> it's a great. It's really cool. And in, in that uh, I, I felt uh, challenged from almost the first, from, from the introduction, you know, that this is, um, to be empathetic toward people who I have been, uh, socially conditioned to completely just delete, just to think of them as, as uh, subhuman or to think of them as, um, well, we put them away and that's good, you know, bat my hands and go back to whatever I was doing. Um, so it's a really fascinating read and I, and I hope it, I hope it, when it, when does it uh, come out here in the, in the, in the States? It comes out, I believe, at the end of February. Okay, so if you can, so we've got some time. Yeah, get it, you can pre-order it, though. I'm assuming. Hmm. Yes, you can pre-order it. Okay, and it's called Evil. Um, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. For show notes and links to everything that we talked about, go to youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find links to previous episodes there. You can also find previous episodes on Stitcher, SoundClouds, iTunes, and wherever podcasts are put up for people to get. You can also follow the show on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. You can follow me at David McCraney. You can go to Facebook and join about half a million people who follow the show on Facebook at slash you are not so smart. If you'd like to support the show, you get the show ad free. You can contribute a dollar to the show and this one person operation will then deliver that show to you without any ads. But if you contribute more than that, you can get t-shirts and posters and signed books and all sorts of other stuff it's pretty cool the opening music is clash by caravan palace this music you're hearing now is by banjo apocalypse the music at the beginning was by mogwai and we have a lot of cool stuff coming up i'm almost there with the next series of logical fallacy episodes plus i've put about 11 interviews into a new series about fake news that's going to be really big and i think it's going to be fun all right, more stuff soon. I'll see you then. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend 
who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.